I don't know about you, but like when it gets to the, the turn of the year, um, maybe it's just the kind of miserable Scott in me, but uh, it kind of makes me think about kind of the, the fundamental things in life, and you know, kind of where I am, where I'm going, things like that. And, and so and I've been thinking about that um, kind of over the last month or so, and it's kind of drawn me back to, I guess, the fundamental things that our faith um, is all about, that Jesus is all about. And that's, that's kind of what I want to um, speak to you. You know, before, you know, we're kind of just on that point, aren't we, where, you know, the batteries and the toys that we bought our kids for Christmas are starting to run out. You know, we're thinking about handing in our gym membership already, <laughs> quitting the diet, you know, all these kinds of things. New Year's resolution, up in smoke. Uh, and just before... So just before we kind of reach that tipping point, I just want to kind of take this moment really to, to talk to you about some fundamental things, um, which in looking at again, wow, just, it just makes me think again how amazing Jesus is, what an awesome man uh, he is, and uh, Really, what an amazing thing that this is that he's done for us. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus starts his his ministry. Basically what happens, um, you know, it's probably worth remembering, you know, that uh, Jesus, uh, you know, born in Bethlehem as we know, and then uh, he he fled with his family as a refugee to Egypt. Uh, He was fleeing persecution. He stayed there for a few years, and then he came back, and he settled in Nazareth. And he, you know, we don't really know anything about him during that time, except that when he was 12 years old, there's a record and look of him going up to Jerusalem for the Passover with his family, and kind of getting left behind. You know, it's one of these things that you laugh at years down the line, not at the time, if you're a parent. Uh, but, but then he just kind of, I guess... We don't really know, but I guess he just kind of worked with his old man, maybe as a carpenter, as a builder, learned his trade. And then at the age of 30, when his cousin John the Baptizer was, was out at the Jordan, you know, just being crazy, like John the Baptist was, you know, uh, he went out to see him and he got baptized. And then he had a period, 40 days in the wilderness. And then after that, he came back and, and he started preaching and teaching in synagogues and in the countryside. And he became like a big deal really quickly. Like people were drawn to him. There, was, there were crowds that followed him. And so this is really, really, this story is really, really early on in Jesus' ministry. And this is the hometown gig. This is like, you know, one of us going away. And, you know, becoming a big deal. And then coming back to Glasgow, and we say, you know, wouldn't it be great if we got him along to do a guest, you know, preach or something like that. You know, the visit, he could be the visiting speaker. Uh, and that's what this is. This um, story is Jesus going back to the hometown, to, going back to the synagogue that maybe, you know, his parents went to, maybe the place where he, you know, was taught to read Hebrew for, for his bar mitzvah when he was 12. This is a crowd that's full of his aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters, 
You know, these are the people who saw him being told off when he was a wee boy by his dad for picking his nose. You know, that, that's, that is the crowd that he is talking to in this story. It's, you know, we can, we can forget all, very quickly the kind of the context, but that is, it's as real as that. This is Jesus just talking to people who knew him, who watched him grow up. Grow up. And, uh, and it's just an extraordinary uh, piece of the Bible. So we're going to read from verse uh, 16 in Luke chapter 4. See if you can follow it with me. Okay. Uh, and he came to Nazareth, where had, he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, we're going to read a wee bit more of that, but we'll pause there for a second. Basically, the questions I've been asking myself is, are, what, you know, what, is the essence of Jesus' mission. This is how he chose to define what he was going to do for the next few years of his life, right up until his death and resurrection. So what is Jesus teaching the people about his mission? What is he teaching us about what it means to follow him? Okay, now... I wonder if we could see, this would be amazing if we could, this slide, which just uh, makes clear what, what is lost when you read your Bible. You see, the way that uh, the Bible was written and the way that Hebrew is often written is full of uh, parallels, which is lost in your translation. So what you can see is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, and then there are five statements. And in the world that we live in, we think sequentially. So we think the killer point in any talk is going to come at the end, because that's what we're building up to. That's how our Western minds work. But that is not how... The minds of the people in the Middle East at this period worked. What they did is they paired ideas that led up to a central point, which was the key point in what was being communicated. So if you can, you can even see it, to proclaim the good news of the poor, the parallel statement is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the central idea that comes into focus is a recovering of sight to the blind. This is how Jesus communicated. This is how 
often the prophetic uh, books were written. There are lots of these kind of parallelisms all the way through the prophetic books. And so what we can do is we can take each of these pairs together before focusing on the central idea. Because this is what his hearers would have heard when he was talking. So, the first thing, to proclaim good news to the poor and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The first thing is this, we need to understand what the word poor really means, what he was getting at. Well, this poor, this word for poor is used throughout, the word that um, is, if you go back to Isaiah 61, you see that this word is used, this word for poor that Isaiah uses, is used throughout his book. And it's used probably most clearly in Isaiah 66, where poor is defined as somebody who is contrite of spirit and someone who trembles at the word of God. This is a fundamental quality of people who know God. And I've got to be honest with you, it's one that this year I feel I want to learn. To be poor in spirit. Numbers 12, it's Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, says that Moses was the meekest or most humble man on the face of the earth. He was also a friend of God. That same word, meekest, could have been translated poor. This is an idea that finds echoes in the Sermon of the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said that the poor in spirit have the kingdom of God and the meek inherit the earth. People who know flip. I need God. I cannot I cannot get through this day without God. I cannot live my life without him. I need him. I need him. Jesus is saying, I have good news for people who feel like that. You see, very often, if I'm honest with you, in crisis, I will lean into my own abilities. I will lean into busyness. I'll lean into what I can try to do to duck and dive and get my way through. And Jesus is saying, I have good news for people who lean into me at these moments. I have good news for people who just are at the end of their rope and know there is no way through except God. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to the humble but this, this second statement, the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that phrase, year of the Lord's favor, the hearers who heard that, what they would have understood that to mean is the concept of jubilee in the Old Testament. Now, the concept of jubilee is that every 50 years, a trumpet, the horn of jubilee, would sound. It probably wouldn't have sounded like that but it would have sounded in Jerusalem. And what that meant is for a whole year, it was like a Sabbath that lasted a whole year. All debts were cancelled. Wow, can you imagine? All debts 
Your mortgage just gone. All debts cancelled. Everything forgiven. Some people, if they got them into, themselves into terrible financial crisis, what they would do is they would sell themselves into slavery. But on the Jubilee year, they were free. Sometimes what they would do is they would sell the piece of land that belonged to their family. But on the Jubilee year, the land would return to the original owner. All debts were cancelled. Everything was set back as it was supposed to be. And all this would happen. The horn of freedom would sound on the day of atonement. What Jesus is saying is this. Is that he came to put things back to the way they were supposed to be. It's much, much broader than just me and Jesus. It's much more like we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that Jesus, that God was uniting all things in heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that when you read about this jubilee concept, God, you know, God tells Israel about it in, I think it's Leviticus 25, and he says to them, actually, all the land will go back to its rightful owners. And he says this, because all the land belongs to me. The point is this, that Jesus came to set everybody free and to cancel all our sins and all our debts, not because we belong to ourselves, but because we belong to him. And the atoning work was his own His cross makes the jubilee the ultimate day of atonement. So he came for the poor and he became to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee. But then we have this other two pairs, or this other pair, sorry. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now that is, that second statement, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, is a terrible translation. And actually most of them are terrible, but the amplified version, if anybody's got that, gets a bit closer. Because the key thing is that, well that's, that second verse is probably better translated he came, sorry, to, to send out the oppressed or to send out the broken in freedom. The point is that there are two words that are repeated in both statements, and these are sent and liberty. The point that Jesus is making is this. I am coming to this earth free. I'm making a free choice. You didn't choose me. I chose you. 
Nobody takes my life from me, but I choose to lay it down. I'm making a free choice to come and love you and transform your life. I'm coming. Now, that word sent, interestingly, is the word apostello, from which we get our word apostle. And in the second pair, what he's saying is this. He will come in freedom and he will give us the same freedom and then he will send us, send us out just as he was sent. So at the end of the book of the Gospel of John where he says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. What he's saying is, I'm going to take the broken and I'm going to make them apostles. I'm going to take people who are so beaten up by life and this sinful world and I am going to speak freedom to them in such a profound way that they are going to be sent out with the freedom that I have always had. Awesome! Jesus is on a mission to free you to do just as he did. And nothing less. Nothing less than what he did. Nothing less than who he was. And then that brings into sharp focus this last, this key phrase to set the recovery of sight to the blind. The recovery of sight to the blind is a miracle. Is a miracle. And the center point of Jesus' mission is this, the miraculous inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven to this earth. This is a summary statement of all that Jesus came to accomplish. That's why his, the summary statement of his preaching was repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The miraculous power of God is here, now. It's available to you, today. Closed eyes can open today in the name of Jesus. It speaks of his love and his compassion and his miraculous power to transform lives. He came for the recovery of sight for the blind. But as important as what he included in this is what he missed out. Because it's interesting that he stopped reading to proclaim, at that point to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does anybody know offhand what the next line in Isaiah reads? To proclaim the date, the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped reading at that moment. Do you know how that would have wound them up? <laughs> but that's where he stopped reading. 
Because you see, Jesus is not here for vengeance. So many of people think he is. He's here to point out where you're failing. He's here to settle the score. He's here to make you feel guilty and to ruin your life. But Jesus stopped reading at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he left the vengeance part out. He could have read on, in fact, and, and read all about the judgment of God and the Gentiles. And goodness me, they would have loved to have heard that. But he just said, you know what? I'm here for favor on all people. I'm here for jubilee. I'm here to release all people from their sins, from all debts, for the recovery of sight to the blind, whoever they are. He is here not for judgment, but for blessing. He was pointing away from the idea that God belonged to one ethnic group and towards the reality that all people belonged to God. You see, this was an astonishingly controversial idea for Nazareth in particular. There's no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament, but it was founded in the first century, sorry, in the second century BC by some Maccabean zealots. And they went there to basically make a Jewish community that would then Judaize the surrounding community. When the the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the first century AD, some of the priests fled to Nazareth. They went there because they knew it was a very Jewish society. It was like a settler town. They were on a frontier. They were trying to push back the Gentile advance and re-Judaize the surrounding community. This is the town that Jesus was raised in. He went to the synagogue and was taught that we are God's people and we are here to fight the Gentiles. And they would have known Isaiah 61. And they would have known particularly the point where God stresses his vengeance on the Gentiles. If you read on in that chapter, you hear about people rebuilding the old cities. And that is what they thought they were doing. They thought they were rebuilding the old cities. So you can imagine how they felt when Jesus read this edited version of Isaiah 61. They would have thought this was nothing less than a betrayal. I thought you were one of us, Jesus. I thought you were on our team. I thought you were on our side. You know, we... Ma, you... You're one of us. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that 
story in the Old Testament just before Joshua fights the battle of Jericho and he meets the commander of the armies of the Lord. And Joshua says to him, are you on our side or are you on their side? And basically, this guy says, listen, I'm not on a side. I'm running this thing. You see, the point is this, that Jesus is, Jesus is not on our team. He's not on your team. But he does give you an unbelievable opportunity to be on his. He's, he's way bigger than just your team. He's not on our side. The only question is, are we on his? Now, this would have caused and did cause unbelievable offense. It took unbelievable amounts of courage to go back to the people who raised you, and I'm sure he loved them dearly, and preached this message. And he annoyed them so much that by the end of the story, they wanted to kill him. Can you imagine that? This is his aunts and uncles. Flip. This is like the family reunion from hell. <laughs> but just when you think that he could not get more offensive, he does. Because you see, what, what rabbis would do is they would come and they would read from the scrolls and then they would comment upon them. And so he's read from the scrolls, he's offended them, but they're thinking, okay, he's offended me, I'm offended now, he's offending me, but he might redeem himself in the comment section. In fact, it gets worse. What he does is he reminds them of two stories. Let's pick it up from verse 23. So they basically just said, is this not Joseph's son? Do you know what I mean? You know, don't we know this guy? This is... This can't be really what he's saying. And verse 23 says, and, di- and he said to them, that's Jesus, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. He was healing people in other parts of the country. You know, why, don't you, why can't you do some healings here? And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth... I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian When they heard those things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Why was this so offensive? Well, we need to remind ourselves of the stories. In 1 Kings chapter 17... 
we read of the story of Elijah going to the widow at Zarephath. Now, this was a time where Israel was being judged by God, and Elijah, mighty man of God, had said it's not going to rain, and there's going to be a famine because of the iniquity of the leaders of this society. And do you know what? It didn't rain, and there was a famine, and people were starving. And God said, I'm going to send you to this widow, and she is going to feed you, and she's going to keep you alive. Wow. I'm going to apostle you. I'm going to send you to this person. And so let's pick it up. If you've got a Bible, 1 Kings chapter 17. And so he arose, chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 10, and so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Wow. Sometimes you've got to really just stop when you're reading a story and think about what it would be like to be that woman. This is a famine that is so severe that this poor woman who's already lost her husband is right on the edge of life. Skin and bones. She knows that she's got days And even worse than that, she has the unspeakable torture of just hanging on long enough to watch the same fate befall her only child. And she says, I'm going to make this last meal because this is all we've got. And then we're going to die. She had nothing. And what Elijah did next, just think, think about that woman and then think about what Elijah does. And Elijah said to her, verse 13, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. You've got nothing and you're about to die. But listen, here's what I want you to do with the little food you've got left. I want you to make a meal because, mate, I am hungry. (laughs) Think about that. Mighty man of God. Wow. How would you feel? What an astonishingly offensive thing to say. I mean, it's astonishingly, I mean, you can't imagine anything more offensive. And the question is, why? Why was Jesus offending the the people of Nazareth? And why is Elijah saying such an offensive thing to this woman? 
Well, it takes us back to where we started. That offense is the only way to separate the prideful and the self-righteous from the poor in spirit and the hungry. You see, she had almost nothing. But almost nothing can keep you from God. Your life can be a complete mess. But you can take that mess and make it together into a little cake that will keep you from God. Because you can say, this is all I've got. But what she realized was that all she had was really a death warrant. It wasn't a meal. It wasn't something that was going to keep her alive. It was something that was going to kill her and her son. Because after it was gone, there was no more. And so she made an astonishing leap of faith. Because you see, in her worldview, in this worldview at this time, God's had geographical spheres of influence. So when Jonah was running from God, that made sense in his worldview. Because Yahweh was only God under in, un, in certain boundaries. And if you got out of these boundaries, you were under the, the, another God. You know, so you could get away from him. That's why he was running. You know, we we read that story and think, you're an idiot. (laughs) But for him, he wasn't, because that's the way they saw the world. But Sidon, where this widow lived, was not in Israel. So this woman makes an astonishing leap of faith and says, even though I don't know you, and even though... Your God is not my God. I will choose to believe that you can do this. And she is rewarded with a jubilee. She has oil that does not run out. You can see where Jesus is going with this. But there's more. You see, later on in the story... They're eating and they're surviving the famine, and then her son dies, and she is mad, understandably. She says, listen, what's the point in us surviving if my son's going to die? And she goes and gives Elijah a hard time, and he said, what? Why did you even come to us to keep us alive if you were just going to let my boy die? And what Elijah does And we've got to see this. Elijah shouldn't even be living with this widow. You know, he was a Jew. They shouldn't have been crossed the threshold into the house of a Gentile, far less lived with them. But he's living in there, in the house. And then he breaks another law. He touches a dead body. In fact, what he does is he picks the dead boy up, lies him in his bed, and spreads out over him and prays to God, and the boy comes back to life. You see, 
In the Old Testament, if an unclean thing touched a clean thing, the clean thing became unclean. What Jesus is saying is, I am clean, and I am going to touch you, and you are going to become clean. What he's saying is, you're dead, but listen, I have life in me, and I'm going to touch you, and you're going to come back to life. And finally, the widow's eyes are opened, the opening of the eyes of the blind. And she says, wow, I now see that you are a prophet of God, and everything you say is true. But what he's saying to the, Naz- the people of Nazareth, these Jews of Jews, is actually, if you want to know what real faith is, you have to imitate a Gentile woman. <laughs> How do you think that went down? Very quickly, the next story, very, very quickly, 2, two Kings 5, Naaman. Naaman, verse 1, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Do you know how important this man was? He was like one of the most important people in the world at this moment. He was the commander of one of the most powerful armies the world had ever seen. He had everything he wanted. He was rich. He was powerful. He had everything he wanted except the one thing that he needed. Healing. Because he was a leper. There's a lot of people in our culture right now and they've got everything they want except the one thing they need. And you see, this story is all about the lowly people. It's all about the poor in spirit. Because he's dying. But his wife has a little Hebrew servant girl who had been captured on one of their raids to Israel. A little nobody. But she talks to Naaman's wife and she says, Do you know what? When I was in Israel, we used to talk about a man of God prophet and he could do miracles and so Naaman's wife tells Naaman big mighty man getting advice from a little servant girl of a conquered people and Naaman will try anything because he has this is the one thing that he needs and so he makes this journey all the way to Israel. He has a disaster with a king who tears his clothes and bursts into tears because he thinks, you know, this is really a threat and he's really trying to invade and, you know, he's not really believing in God, the king, but eventually he finds his way to Elisha. This is a long journey. And what does Elisha do? Elisha does not even bother to get off his butt. You know, you can imagine Elisha there flipping channels and his lazy boy... It's a knock at the door. Who is it? Well, it's just one of the most powerful people in the world. You know, it's like Obama is at the door. I mean, you'd think he would get out of his seat, at the very least. 
Elisha sends his servant to the door. Listen, in this culture, this was an astonishing insult. This man had traveled. Even if he was a nobody, it would be an astonishing insult. You know, travelers were invited in. They got a room for the night. They got meal. They got sustenance. This is one of the most powerful men in the world leading one of the most powerful armies. You know, if I was Elijah, I'd be thinking, listen, if I don't let him in, he might come back with some of his pals. Doesn't even let him in the house. But sends his servant out to him and says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to go and wash seven times in the Jordan. Now to Naaman, Naaman lived in Damascus. And the people of Damascus enjoy the cleanest source of fresh water in the Middle East. The snow melts in the hills and it flows through their city. In comparison, the Jordan was a muddy swamp. And he's saying, go and wash in the Jordan. And Naaman is in. And he's, he's, he's off. But I told you, this story was about the little people, the lowly people, the poor in spirit. And Naaman's servant, who's maybe a bit more used to being humble and taking orders that he doesn't like, says to him, listen, if you'd been told to do a great thing, you would have done it. And this is an easy thing. So why don't you just give it a go? And somehow, I mean, I can't tell you how humbling this must have been for this man. He agrees to take advice from his servant. And he goes and does it. And he is healed. But there's a bit of his pride left because after he's healed, he comes back to see Elisha and he wants to pay for it. He's like, I'm healed, great. Listen, I've got all this stuff. I'm guessing I owe you something. Proud people are like that. They want to pay for something that is so valuable, it has to be given away for free. And so Elijah does not accept, but sends him away, but apostellos him in peace. It's interesting that Naaman... Before he goes, what he does is he fills the sacks of a couple of donkeys that he's got with him with the earth from Israel. Now, why would you do that? The reason you do that is because you have a worldview that says unless you're standing on the soil of Israel, you cannot worship the God of Israel. And Naaman has just been converted. He wants to worship So he takes the soil of Israel away with him. His eyes have been opened. You see, what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you will humble yourself, and if you will come to me poor in spirit, I will free you. I will give you a jubilee. I will let you off with all the debt, all the mess. I'll break you out of any prison that you've got yourself in. And I'll give you 
this oil inside that won't run out, this Holy Spirit. And I'll give you a place, like a bit of earth. Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you before the Father where you can worship. You'll have your eyes open to who you really are and who he really is. And more than that, you will be sent out. You will be, you came to me broken, or rather I came to you when you were broken, but I will send you out in freedom. That is the mission of Jesus. Wow. It's a big, big deal. And this year, this year, this is what I want. What I want, although it's just one final thing, it's interesting also that he tells one story about a man and one story about a woman. That would have offended them as well. And what he's saying is actually there are neither, there are no, there are no male nor female now. There's no Jew nor Gentile. There's just humble people who come to me in faith. And what I want this year is I want to learn how to be poor in spirit. I want to learn how to wake up every morning and say, Jesus, I need you. I can't get through this day without you. Because I know that actually, if I can learn that humble way, then I can have my eyes opened to who he really is, who I am, and then I can be sent out in all his freedom to transform this world.